Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. What does it take to really save nature? That's a key question that writer and environmentalist Mary Ellen Hannibal asks in her new book, Citizen Scientist, Searching for Heroes and Hope in an Age of Extinction. In this widely ranging adventure, part memoir, part investigation, Mary Ellen Hannibal uh, make, take, makes a deeply personal case for the necessity of citizen scientists sharing stories from boaters, recording whale sightings, and tracking migration paths to the volunteers whose redwood restoration projects may provide our best hope in slowing an unprecedented mass extinction. Hannibal traces the citizen scientist movement to its roots, the centuries-long tradition of amateur observation by writers and naturalists. In addition to facing the loss of species, Hannibal also chronicles her confrontation with personal loss. Prompted by her novelist father's sudden death, she examines her own past and discovers a family legacy of looking closely at the world. Mary Ellen Hannibal is a Bay Area writer and editor focusing on science and culture. Her book, Spine of the Continent, is about social, geographic, and uh, scientific effort to save nature along the Rocky Mountains. Hannibal's other books include Evidence of Evolution, Leaves and Pods, and Good Parenting Through uh, Your Divorce. And she also writes for uh, such works as the New York Times, uh, San Francisco Chronicle, Esquire, L, and among other many other outlets. She's won several awards. And uh, she is headlining an event in uh, Utah this evening. This is part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival. She'll be at the Marmalade Branch of the Salt Lake City Public Library 7 p.m. this evening to discuss her uh, book, Citizen Scientist. Marilyn Hannibal, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm so delighted to have this conversation with you. Uh, so uh, I'd like to start with um, the introduction. You introduce us to someone I was not familiar with. Uh, you're saying he's a very influential uh, person, especially uh, in the citizen scientist movement. That's Ed Ricketts. Tell me about him. Oh, well, what a fun, um, fun question for you to ask me. I absolutely love talking about Ed Ricketts. So Ed Ricketts was an amateur biologist. Some would say he was a professional. He was a great, great friend of John Steinbeck. And they met in, in Carmel, uh, well, down in Monterey, in the Depression. And Ricketts had something called the Pacific Biological Laboratories. And he collected specimens from the intertidal and sold them to universities for, for biology departments. But Ed, so Ed Ricketts went to the University of Chicago. He never finished, never had an advanced degree. But he wrote something called Between Pacific Tides, which became really a foundational textbook, even in use today, published by Stanford University Press, to really explain uh, how, how the intertidal animals and, and environment work together. So he had really kind of a holistic, ecological view of nature at a time when that wasn't how it was organized at all. Um, other, other kind of competing books would put animals in the intertidal kind of, they would organize it by phylogeny or body type. But Ed Ricketts was this fabulous guy who inspired Steinbeck a lot. He became the, the model for Doc in Cannery Row and for many other characters in Steinbeck's fiction. And I focus in the book on this incredible year when Ed Ricketts, Joseph Campbell, and John Steinbeck all hung out together. So some people will remember that Joseph Campbell was the person who wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces and myths to live by. And he eventually, in the 1980s and 90s, became this really famous world mythologizer. And this year, 
that they lived together in the same kind of area and just, you know, partied together, essentially. Everybody was very poor. It was a depression. And Edric, it's Joseph (laughs) Joseph Campbell and John Steinbeck all really influenced each other. But from the perspective today of citizen science, one of the main things about citizen science is that we need to collect information on biodiversity and nature over time so that we can track how things are changing for it and understand what's happening to it. So today, one of the big citizen science projects I participate in is led by the California Academy of Sciences, and we monitor a tide pool in Half Moon Bay. And over the time since 2012 that we've monitored it, there's been something called a sea star wasting syndrome that has wiped out virtually all of the sea stars or starfish, otherwise known as starfish, from the environment. Now, there's a huge monitoring effort by professionals and amateurs, citizen scientists like us, to monitor the coast of California. So it turns out, not only California, but the whole of North America, it turns out that this is the biggest marine die-off known to man. So in order to kind of grapple with that, we have to look at specimens and what's happening all along the coast. And there's no, there's, it's a huge coast. There's no biologist who could kind of grapple with that by themselves, which is why we need citizen scientists. It turns out that Ed Ricketts went on an expedition to Sitka, Alaska, with Joseph Campbell. And because they went there and collected some specimens, we have specimens from the 1930s from Ed Ricketts, from that area. So that creates this ability to now measure what's going on in Sitka today with what was found then. At the same time, John Steinbeck and Ed Ricketts took an expedition together to the Sea of Cortez, where they did the same thing they collected, and also then Steinbeck and Ricketts wrote a book called The Sea of Cortez, which is still in print as the log from the Sea of Cortez. In fact, this year is the 75th anniversary of the log from the Sea of Cortez. So what I love about Ed Ricketts is that he kind of combines the worlds of art, science, and public participation like you and me in discovery. And it's not just discovery of biology. It's also looking at, you know, what's the meaning of all this and how do, how do art and literature and personal experience all fit together with science. So that's why one of the reasons I love Ed Ricketts. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, you're blowing my mind here. That I, I, I had no idea that Joseph Campbell and, and uh, John Steinbeck hang, hung out together. At, it's at crazy, a, uh, and you know what? Joseph Campbell, his whole life, about his you know mythology, he said Ed Ricketts was the heart of it all. Ed Ricketts started it all, and what he said was what he understood from talking to Ricketts was mythology comes out of nature. And he said, myth is nature talking. Hmm. And, you know, that's a mind blower, right? You've got to think yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But he got that from Ricketts. Mm, interesting. Uh, so I want to explore this a little further and then get into the, you know, have you defined citizen science? Uh, but but the, the connection with Steinbeck. Steinbeck, you know, I think stands for in our minds uh, stories of, uh, you know, the, the downtrodden, the ordinary people. Um, what, what's the connection here with, with, with nature and citizen science? Well, really interestingly, I consider this book, The Log from the Sea of Cortez, to be kind of not a Bible, maybe a Bible of citizen science, um, or a, it's just, it's kind of a hallmark of where I think the potential for, for some kinds of citizen science is today. So one of the interesting things about Steinbeck is he studied marine biology. He never finished college either. 
He went to Stanford, didn't finish. And he was interested in becoming a marine biologist, but he didn't do that. And right after The Grapes of Wrath was published, he was this vaunted author, um, Pulitzer Prize for that, and he he was very, you know, he was thrust onto a national and international stage, but he became very disillusioned with all that. And he said, my next book is going to be about something real. It's going to be about, he, he was going to write a book with Ed Ricketts on, on San Francisco Bay. And they ended up not doing that, but they ended up writing this book about the Sea of Cortez. So he, you know, he brought these questions, when you read the book, of of what's the relationship between these physical objects in the tide pool and the the, the rhythmic way that the tide pool works with the sun and the moon, the seasons, and and all of that that we all live by also, and he sought to really integrate that with with a literary approach, which he does to, in this book. It's really pretty amazing. Hmm. And what about the connection to Joseph Campbell? We know him as uh, you know the, the power of myth. And and the hero's journey is kind of bullet points well, for Joseph Campbell. Steinbeck and Steinbeck and Campbell kind of hit it off quickly. They were both uh, they were mistaken for brothers. Actually, they were. So you have to think these guys are young. They're in their late twenties, like twenty eight. They're big, buff, you know, a- ambitious men who are you know really got their both of them with their arms and their minds open wide about what the world has to offer and what they have to offer the world. And um, and then there's Ed Ricketts, who's slightly older and a little bit more mellow and and not as um, driven as either one of them. He was not a driven person at all. He was kind of the opposite of that. So they both loved Ricketts. Uh, and Steinbeck and Campbell were both really interested in Jungian psychology and in um, you know in the same kinds of philosophies. So they would, all three of them, and with other people, they stayed up all night talking all the time, and they just had a grand time. But it did turn out that um, Campbell and Steinbeck had a big rivalry. And Campbell had at least a flirtation, if not a full-on affair, nobody knows, of course, with Steinbeck's wife, Carol. Now, their their marriage was always kind of rocky, and it was headed south anyway, but Campbell had a role in that, and in fact... Steinbeck ended up ordering <laughs> Campbell out of town at the, the point of a gun. And that's actually where Ricketts said to Campbell, look, I'm going to get you out of here. Let's go on this expedition to Sitka. <laughs> hmm. and interesting. They, they did some citizen science. Uh, how was Ricketts, how was he received in the, you know, the official scientific community? He, he had never gotten his degrees. But um, you'll find today that... First of all, almost every marine biologist knows who Ed Ricketts is, and many were inspired to become marine biologists because of him. Um, and But a real, quote-unquote, real Ph.D. scientist will not say that he was a scientist, but because he did not have an advanced degree, and he did not, the way that he collected, he really collected specimens for sale. So he didn't uh, collect according to protocols that today would be considered really scientific. Um, they went out when the tide was low. Today, if you're going to collect, and as we do at the California Academy of Sciences, we have a, we make a transect. So a transect is just where you put a tape measure around the same exact space every time you go out. And we have a GPS locator, so we locate exactly the same space every single time we go to the tide pool. Now, when you do, when you are monitoring in the same exact place over time, that is becomes useful to science. And when you can also make sure that you can 
fix a date, a time, a latitude, and a longitude to an observation of a species in a same place, then that becomes science. And, of course, we didn't have GPS back in those days, and there were scientists that were doing more scientific types of surveys than Ricketts was. There was Joseph Grinnell who really established um, how to take how to run a survey, and there were other other some other models. But this is this is where the world of ecology has become much more scientific in a in a really official way in more recent years. But there is a whole group of people out there. They some of them call themselves Edheads, <laughs> who are just kind of devotees of Ed Ricketts. And whenever I'm talking to one of them, they say. Why are you calling Ed Ricketts a citizen scientist? He was a real scientist. Hmm. And, um, but a Ph.D. scientist would not agree with that. And it actually brings up a point of what is the difference between citizen science and real science. And this is a very interesting point because, actually, if it's, citizen science is done in the correct way, it is real science. So typically we think of real science with a capital S as hypothesis testing. A scientist with a Ph.D. has an idea to test something and see if it works or see what happens and runs an experiment and then makes a note of the results and then might run several different kinds of experiments or might do the same experiment in a different uh, place and then writes up a a paper, and if it gets accepted in a publication, you've got a piece of science. And citizen science works a little bit differently, and what we're doing with citizen science is, again, monitoring over time and what we need, and the reason we need lots of people involved, is because it needs so many data points. So instead of looking at the needle in the haystack, which is something, maybe an analogy for what an experiment is all about, the citizen science looks at haystack after haystack after haystack and says, what are the patterns we're seeing in these haystacks? And that comes about through statistical analysis and computing power, and it's about probability. This kind of science has been around for a while, but today in the world of big data, where we have incredible powers of computing and incredible powers of observation, it has reached a very different threshold of importance. And also, it's hugely important now because big data is the only way to grapple with the big global problems that we're facing. Mm. Um, I'm going to quote Bill McKibben here. Um, he, he, in his re- review of your, your book, his blurb, he says, the idea that science is something for a cast of high priests to attend to is simply wrong. Science is all around us, and we each can revel in its pleasures and processes. So uh, I want to explore this. Is, is there division? Is it uh, expanding, narrowing? Uh, because, um, you know, and uh, we're Utah Public Radio, we're based at Utah State University. I, I talk with professors almost on a daily basis. They're there is a quote-unquote priesthood, right? There's, mm-hmm. And uh, I could see where there might be divisions and jealousies. Is, is that narrowing, or what's the attitude of the, of the, ac- the academic community? Well, it's, the whole thing is really bubbling up uh, and really expanding very, very quickly. So when I decided to write my book about citizen science, it came out of my previous book, The Spine of the Continent. And actually one of the reasons I decided to do citizen science as a book was that I was seeing that, um, that actually enjoining lots of people to help in scientific research actually had this big bonus effect of not only gathering much more data than a single scientist with his or her grad students could possibly do, but also because the participants, the, the, the actual people, you know, volunteering, were 
observing themselves uh, directly, what's happening in nature in different places, and coming up with some pretty interesting ideas. So in the best possible case, you have you have volunteers who are actually having a conversation and a partnership with the PhD scientists and saying, hey, we see this going on. Could you, what, what would be the scientific question around that? And you have plenty of PhD scientists who are really enthusiastic about this and use volunteers to help them do their research. But it is, you know, there is, um, and particularly, and it's, it's really not fair because there's some older scientists you know, in their 60s and 70s and 80s, who really keenly appreciate citizen science. Uh, but there's others who don't, and that's okay. They don't need to use citizen science. I think probably almost every person, even with a Ph.D. under 40, who understands what big data is, um, and most of them do, because, you know, with this computing power and with this absolute huge scale of possibility of asking questions, uh, most scientists today understand what big data is, and and they are going to be in favor of citizen science. Now, at the same time, you know, citizen science is, is something that doesn't just grow, uh, you know, just add water. <laughs> it actually costs some money to manage a volunteer cadre. You need a volunteer coordinator. You need um, you need to have some kind of institutional support usually. Uh, although that can be a little nonprofit that does it. And here in Utah, you have the Wild Utah Project, which is one of my favorite um, nonprofit organizations working toward the spine of the continent. So that was my previous book about connectivity in the Intermountain West. And connectivity is really just the concept that we can have protected areas here and there, but if they aren't connected, if plants and animals can't move freely between them, then even when we put our arms around a place like uh, Zion or Bryce, the species in them are going to go extinct at a faster rate. So I saw that then the problem is where is the connectivity on the landscape and where should it be protected? Now this is something the Wild Utah Project asks and helps gather the science about where those pieces of connectivity on the landscape here are. And Thus, they are helping to keep your natural world very vibrant and alive here. And look into them. They're just a wonderful nonprofit. They also have a bunch of citizen science projects in which they are using citizen scientists to help do the canvassing. Where are the, where are the animals? They have a wonderful boreal toad project where volunteers go out and they do something called a bio-blitz. And that's where you have a single period of time and a lot of people, and you go out looking for species. Now, most of the time, bioblitzes are done in national parks or local parks or on some kind of protected area where people are coming in and they're, they're documenting every single species they see. But what the Wild Utah Project has people do is really just look for the boreal toads and, and then also make note of where they do not find them. And this it gets a little wonky, but when you get to presence, absence data, that is very sophisticated science indeed. And that is what the citizen scientists are helping the PhD scientists determine. Then all that data is used by the scientists to analyze and then write a paper and make recommendations about where the landscape should be protected first. Let's take a break. When we come back uh, more with Mary Ellen Hannibal, her new book is called Citizen Scientist. 
And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about, uh, you, uh, this is a quote from the introduction to the book, co-created projects fundamentally question what science is, who gets to do it, and what it's for. I want to follow up that. Uh, this is, uh, and you, you recount your experience out with a, with a Ph.D., in the Santa Cruz Mountains, I think, in uh, California. Um, also very interesting, you say history is based on storytelling and narratives. You imagine as you're up there in the mountains, the Spanish priests who, who came in a couple of centuries ago, and uh, they thought they were creating something, and they were, but they're also destroying something. So I want to talk about that double narrative. Uh, and much more, of course, the uh, high stakes here. The uh, uh, subtitle of the book mentions extinction. Um, we're talking with Mary Ellen Hannibal, Citizen Scientist uh, is her book, and uh, she is uh, appearing in Utah this evening at 7 o'clock at the Marmalade Branch of the Salt Lake City Public Library. That's a part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival, and this event is made possible with support from the Marmalade Branch of Salt Lake City Public Library, Tory House Press, and Utah Humanities. More following the break. Did you know that when parents rave about a goal their child scored in the latest soccer game, the young athlete may be hearing more pressure than praise? When parents focus on scoring or the amount of time played on the field, the child may be hearing that mom or dad only cares about winning. Parental pressure and an overemphasis on winning in youth sports are the biggest reasons why children drop out. By the time they turn 13, 7 out of 10 young players quit participating. So what is the best thing a parent can say after watching their child's game? They can tell their young athlete, I love watching you play. Children also appreciate their parents when they hear some encouragement after a bad game. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. Committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Mike Myers will be here to talk about his new book, Canada. And if the Canadian actor, comedian, and screenwriter shares some of his childhood memories and how he sees the country now. Plus, you'll hear music from A Tribe Called Red. It's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Marianne Ellen Hannibal. Uh, she's a Bay Area writer and editor focusing on science and culture, and her latest book is Citizen Science, Scientist. Rather. Uh, she asks, what does it take to really save nature? And uh, this is a wide-ranging adventure, part memoir, part investigation. She makes a deeply personal case for the necessity of citizen scientists. We'll get into some of those uh, stories as we go along. Uh, Mary Ellen Hannibal is appearing this evening, 7 o'clock, as part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival at the Marmalade Branch of the Salt Lake City Public Library uh, in Salt Lake City, 7 o'clock tonight. You can reach this program with your question or comment uh, a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, our toll-free phone number, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com is our email, Upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, Marilyn Hannibal, I wonder if you'd tell me a little bit about this. You opened the book with this experience up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, I think, uh, California. Uh, what were you doing up there? Thank you for asking about this, Tom. It's really one of my most favorite um, dimensions of this book. And and it was I was writing this book, and when I was reporting on this 
story in the Santa Cruz Mountains, I really had this revelation that made me really reorganize how I was presenting the whole book. So there is a category of citizen science called co-creation. Sometimes it's called extreme citizen science, and it's focused on indigenous cultures and underserved communities, or really any kind of group that might, where where in the question itself that would be being addressed doesn't really necessarily just come from the PhD scientist, but comes from the people themselves. So for many years in the world of archaeology and anthropology, working with PhDs who work with indigenous people will do co-created projects. So they don't come to um, an Indian tribe and say, I'm going to study this on your landscape about your culture. They say, I would like to investigate these questions about your landscape and your culture. Is there, are there some questions you would like to ask as well? And will you, you know, be our co-partner, our co-creator of this of this scientific instigation. Um, so I went to find a, a story to tell the, about this whole dimension of citizen science. And in the Santa Cruz Mountains, there's been this incredible work over the last oh, at least 10 years, more probably 15, to, um, to quantify. So they're PhD archaeologists who are looking at really proving through data that California Indians burned the landscape for at least 10,000 years. Now, in California, this is very important because the idea and the hypothesis is that our, our forests and our ecosystem evolved, co-evolved with this burning regime of the California Indians. When the Spanish came in 1769, this was Portola, and it came with um, Unipero Serra, to establish missions along the coast of California, which would, were intended to basically be little mini outposts of the Spanish crown and were meant to you know, create wealth and, and production that would feed the Spanish elsewhere. So the way that the Spanish would get the California Indians to work for them is to con, con, uh, convert them to Christianity. So the Spanish came in 1769, and they immediately stopped the Indians from burning. They also immediately started killing all the grizzly bears on the landscape and the wolves, both of which are gone from California today, although there might be a wolf or two living up in the very northern part. And when I was standing in the, in the Santa Cruz Mountains, I realized I was looking out over the water. In the 1800s, you know, almost all of the... It started the, the very downward spiral whales have been in on ever since, with the whaling industry coming west and taking the whales out of the water. And then the sea otters off the coast were also hunted to near extinction for their fur. And I knew that beavers had also been hunted to near extinction for their fur on the terrestrial landscape. And losing all of these species and this process of fire, I realized, is really what's started putting us in the bad place we are in today vis-a-vis our environment, and that all of these causes that are still unfolding today in a negative way have a historical precedent. So I realized that here, right before 1769, here was a model of an ecosystem that was working very well in, in relationship with the human on the landscape. 
Now, indigenous people everywhere don't have the same story. This is really just a story about California Indians, but it's a very significant one because there was a higher human habitation in California of, indig- of indigenous people um, anywhere except in Mexico on North America at the time that Portola came in. And the way that the Indians cultivated their their wildlife, they kept it wild, they never domesticated any animals, and their interactions through fire and other practices actually increased wild populations. So the project that I was and I stay involved with is these PhD archaeologists who are who are, you know, looking at these things called phytoliths in the uh in the the ground to see you know, where can they date carbon uh, that has been that they can date and show that it was burned, and that different kind of plant communities and different kinds of mammal communities lived there as a result. It's very, very involved. And the Amamutsen Tribal Band is co-creating this project. And the Amamutsen were among the California Indians who really were hammered hard by the, the Spanish. Today, they do not have federal recognition as a tribe. And part of that is because they were so thoroughly taken over by the Spanish that they lost their own identity in terms of where they live. So in the part early 1900s, when the United States government was handing out tribal sovereignty, it was based on Indians living in a certain place and saying they had lived there for a long time, and it it was their their land. And the Amamutsen couldn't show that because they had been disrupted for a long time. So today the Amamutsen are seeking to really reconnect with their uh, tribal identity, and they're also seeking to really recreate a positive relationship with the human on the landscape. Even though the Santa Cruz Mountains are very beautiful and full of greenery and protected areas, they're actually kind of a mess. They're full of invasive species and, and reductions of natural species and erosion, and they don't sequester as much carbon as they could, and what they what needs to happen is that the landscape needs to be restored. Now, as we go forward with restoring lots of our American landscape on the United States, that's a very complicated question of do we restore to some historical moment in time or do we restore to some other standard? So that's a question that's unfolding. There's no complete answer to that. It will never be like it was in 1769. We're not going to put grizzly bears and wolves back on the landscape, so it won't be the same. Can we restore some burning to the landscape? And I want to say that when I was working on this part of my book, Val Lopez, who's the chair of the Amamutsen, kept saying to me, Mary Ellen, you keep calling this science, but it's not science. It's stewardship. It's caring for the land, and it's about our relationship with Creator. And you know how it is when you sort of hear something over and over again, and then finally you kind of get it? And I think Val said this to me enough times that I finally understood, oh, what we're doing here is rejiggering, rediscovering how to relate to the landscape in a way that is mutually beneficial. And that then struck me as exactly what we need to do across the board here in this environmental crisis. So you mentioned you know, this extinction that's going on and um, it is terrifying, actually. In the last 40 years, according to the World Wildlife Fund, in the last 40 years, we've lost 50% of all bodies of animals, uh, wild animals, including birds. So when we say extinction, few, not that many species have actually gone completely extinct. 
But what's arguably worse about what's going on is that these populations of species are getting vastly reduced. And that's kind of like if you look at a, a, fa- a piece of fabric where, you know, you, you wear your favorite pair of pants over and over and over again. And so then the, the fabric at the knees wears out, and then you only have a few filaments holding that together. That's a, like a rough analogy of what happens when you start taking all these species out. That fabric becomes frayed, and then pretty, pretty soon it's going to pop, and it's going to have a big hole. And then, you know, maybe you can patch it, but, you know, how long does that last for those pants? Sometimes it's st- they're still at the end of their life. So the thing of really cultivating in our own backyards, like in the Santa Cruz Mountains, a relationship to the, to the landscape there that helps bring it back to better functioning is, is what we want everywhere. And, and I think the, the Amamutsen story is just very, it's emotionally very touching, very wrenching what these people have gone through over centuries. And then still this beautiful impulse and desire and commitment to reweave that fabric, I, I find that just absolutely inspiring. There's a moment in the in the book. You're uh, out out in the uh, in the bay. You're you're I guess you're counting starfish, and there's there's a particular starfish who doesn't uh, you know doesn't want to go back after you've doesn't doesn't particularly swim away. And you write that uh, what you didn't realize at this time, or the person you're talking to didn't realize at the time, is you may never see a starfish in that place again. You know, and since then, in 2012, that starfish that we picked up, this intern picked it up, God bless her, it was the length of her arm. It was, I mean, gigantic sea star, and they're top predators in their ecosystem. There's, there's been tiny little starfish. Uh, when the scientists say they're recruiting, coming, that means maybe they're coming back into the tidal waters but it is, still remains to be seen whether they will be also succumbing to the sea star wasting syndrome. So from you know Baja to, to Alaska, the sea star wasting syndrome has been documented in vast reductions of sea stars. There's, there's some populations still here and there. And you know there's just no way around it. It's really it's a big freaking disaster. And when, one of the things that's kind of difficult, I think, about it is nobody knows exactly why it's happening, because there's so many factors that are probably working together in a negative way. So we happen to know that the virus that is causing the sea star wasting was in the water for years before it started to affect the sea stars. And the reason we know it was in the water is because the coast has been monitored very closely for decades, mostly because we have oil spills on the coast. And so if you're, you're anticipating the next oil spill, you have to know how many species are where so that when they disappear because they've been, you know, mauled by the, the oil spill, then you can go to court and say this is what we lost. So the coast has been monitored very cl- much more closely than, say, a terrestrial landscape usually is. So we know that this d- virus was in the water. So what made it suddenly start to have this effect in 2012? Well, you have warming ocean temperatures. You have higher pollution. You have ocean acidification. And you have this really what I think is probably the biggest kind of scariest thing is is basically a change in how the ocean seems to be working. And by the way, what happens in the Pacific there actually completely affects your ecosystem here in Utah because it's all one system, and the oceans have these currents and these, these weather systems 
that completely interact with the terrestrial environment. And and so what does happen in the Pacific really does impact your biodiversity here in Utah as well. But off the coast of California, there's something called the California Current, and it dredges up um, nutrients from all the way in the bottom of the ocean and brings them to the top where they can photosynthesize, and then they become food for the whole food chain of, of the ocean, from you know anchovies and sardines to blue whales, which are the largest bodied animals on the planet. So it... I don't know the answer to this, and neither do the scientists. It would appear that there's some perturbations, these changes that we don't really understand going on with the California current now, and they have to do with El Nino and El Nino events. Those are the big tropical weather events that can change the temperature and how the, how the California current works. But uh, some Stanford researchers have quantified that you know this is all in response partly to the drought that we have in California and that a healthy portion of that drought is exacerbated by human-caused climate change. So, But here you see this problem of we can't just look at the sea stars and say, well, it's just climate change. We don't know that. could also be, um, it could be ocean acidification. It could be pollution. It could be something we just haven't even thought of yet. And um, the only way to grapple with what such a big problem is is to get data at the largest possible scale. And that's what citizen scientists on the coast are out doing, including me. And I'm always really happy to see a sea star out there, but I've not seen a, one bigger than, you know, my fist since 2012. Mm. Uh, let's take another break when we come back more with uh, Mary Ellen Hannibal. Her book is Citizen Scientist. When we come back, I want to talk about this double narrative. She says, she says in the book, history is based on storytelling and narratives. The Spanish priests who established missions in California thought they were creating something, and they were, but they were also destroying something. We want to bring that uh, to, perhaps, as a society, our double narratives that, uh, that we talk about. Also, perhaps, get into talking about uh, some of the personal stories. It's part memoir, this book is, and uh, Mary Ellen Hannibal uh, deals with personal loss, the loss of her father connects that up with with uh, loss of nature. Um, you can join this conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Mary Ellen Hannibal uh, will appear this evening at 7 o'clock as a part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival at the Marmalade Branch of the Salt Lake City Public Library. And we'll discuss her book, A Citizen Scientist. More following the break. Companies here compete in a global economy, sometimes at a disadvantage. We are all about hiring the best um, you know, engineers, the best uh, product managers, the best folks out there. And I think that um, there's a shortage of talent like that in the United States. I'm Kai Rizdal, Immigration Part 2 on our series, How the Deck is Stacked, next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Ask Me Another, we've compiled some of our favorite TV-themed segments into one episode and stumped some contestants along the way. Do you watch a lot of television? Well, I thought I did, but yeah. apparently <laughs> not nearly enough. You're wasting all your time in grad school. <laughs> so join me, Ophira Eisberg, for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Living on Earth, 
celebrating handmade alternatives to the ubiquitous plastic shopping bag. It's kind of creativity in action. They are personal, they're not mass produced, they're signed by the sewer, and they're also really functional. Turning trash into useful and handy treasure. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are talking with Mary Ellen Hannibal. Her book is Citizen Scientists, Searching for Heroes and Hope in an Age of Extinction. Mary Ellen Hannibal will be at the Marmalade Branch of the Salt Lake City Public Library this evening at 7 o'clock. That event is part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival, and uh, it's uh, free and open to the, uh, the public. She'll be discussing Citizen Scientists at that event. You can join this conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. Marilyn Hannibal, uh, you write uh, the following History is based on storytelling, on narratives. The Spanish priests who established the missions here, talking about California, thought they were creating something, and they were, but they were also destroying something. They told themselves one story, but they were living another one at the same time. I want to bring that forward to today. What, what's the double narrative that we are telling ourselves? Well, first of all, Tom, I just want to thank you for your questions because I'm really loving them. I feel like you're getting really to the heart and soul of of what this book is about and what I'm trying to convey. So let's just take it back to the Spanish. You know, they first of all, if you ever read Junipero Serra, he really, really felt like he was doing the right thing by converting Indians to Christianity. Now, we, we kind of scratch our heads now and say, really, because they did not need to be converted to anything. They had a perfectly great cosmology, and actually you forced them to do that in order to try to survive. And then the Spanish, of course, thought they were kind of improving the landscape by farming it and ranching it. And, in fact, they were helping to unravel ecosystems. And you have... Um, the expedition journal, the expedition diary of Juan Crespi of that expedition, in which Crespi takes meticulous note of all of the wildflowers, the burning, and the, the grizzly bears, and the elk, and all of the species that he saw when they were traveling up to the coast. And today, we can look at that expedition diary and say, well, that's actually the evidence of what was there and how it was functioning. So we can't really look at that expedition anymore with just uh, sort of, you know, not on the terms in which the Spanish did it, but the terms upon which we would analyze what happened today. So this is really kind of the tough thing of figuring out how to grapple with our issues today because they're so ubiquitous, they're so big, they're global, they're local, and they are global. It's like that sea star wasting. It's, it's prob- all of our problems have multiple causes. So how are we going to figure out what's the right way forward um, in terms of the life that we know we need and want to live? I mean, just whatever our other aspirations are, we need to have clean water, we need to have clean air, and we need to have food to eat. And these very functioning things are at risk with the way that we're living today. So the thing about citizen science, which to me is is one of the most exciting things, is that with 
a piece of smartphone technology. You can use this app called iNaturalist that I write about. With iNaturalist on your phone, you don't even have to use a phone. You can use a camera. You take an observation of something in nature, say a bird, and you upload it to the website, and the, the app says, do you need help with this ID? I always say yes. <laughs> and there's people looking at these observations on iNaturalist all over the world, and a lot of them are experts in their fields, and they're very interested in where certain species are seen at what time. So they're kind of looking for that bird maybe, and then that expert will say, yes, that's you know a, a ruby-throated sparrow or hummingbird, and you can tell what kind of birder I am. Um, and then when two other experts have said, yes, they verify that that observation is what we say it is, then that observation, which is a photograph, a date, a time, a latitude, and a longitude, gets uploaded into something called GBIF, which is a big digital museum of specimens from all over the world that are digitized. They're pictures or, or data online that anybody can see and analyze that data. So what this is, though, if you will is a kind of expedition diary of capturing time and species occurrence in real life with a verification of where you saw what when. And with that kind of information, then you suddenly have a story to tell about what's going on on the landscape that's much more deeply informed than, say, Portola was coming to, you know, of course, nobody in the 1700s had any idea that all this was going to happen. But citizen science is a way for us to try to get grapple with truth-telling about what's really happening on the landscape. So, you know, you can, this happens all the time. I mean, I, I have a friend who, who um, has a new house in, in the wine country in California, and, and she said, oh, I love, you know, this new garden that I have. It's, it's so beautiful. It's full of all of these you know, California plants. And you look at her garden, and it's actually full of invasive exotic plants that have been planted by gardeners and that actually really don't belong in the ecosystem. Now, she doesn't know that, right? She doesn't have any information about really what lives in California when it grows there naturally. And because she has invasive plants, she's actually helping to harm the ecosystem. She doesn't have a lot of native plants, so native pollinators like butterflies and bees are not necessarily coming to her garden, and there's fewer birds using the resources. So she's motivated to learn what are the native plants to California and to change her garden so that it actually has those native plants and then brings in native wildlife. And on a very, it's a very small personal scale that we can do something like that, but it's super, super important because, you know, you've read about, like, the monarch butterfly crash in their populations. Well, we're really helping bring monarchs back by planting milkweed because they need milkweed. It's, it's their host plant. So by, by creating habitat for other species, if you build it habitat, they will come <laughs> native species. It's really quite true. Uh, not entirely. Sometimes an ecosystem has gone beyond the pale, but most of the time we can really recuperate it. Um, and I think that the, our problems are so big and global that the only way to kind of dive in is, is kind of dive in anywhere. Wherever it might be interesting to you, maybe you are a gardener. That's a very good place to do something. Maybe you want to go on a volunteer trip with the Wild Utah Project or somebody else. Um, kind of get connected to asking yourself, what's the truth of this landscape? Not by the stories that were told about it, 
but by a, a deeper way of looking at it that has to do not only with human impacts on it, but with the other species that live on it. Uh, one of my favorite stories that bridges both the spine of the continent and citizen science is the success of the Path of the Pronghorn Initiative in Wyoming. This is a, a, a migration pathway that a single herd of antelope have undertaken every year for at least 6,000 years. And back in the 90s, some scientists realized that these, these antelope were getting, you know, trounced, getting hit by cars and trucks as fracking started to increase in huge amounts in the area. So they went around, they joined up with nonprofits and with a forest service and went around to people that lived near or on the path of the pronghorn. And it took a while, it took a long time, but they determined exactly where the path of the pronghorn is. So you can draw a line on a map of where this, this herd of antelope is going to go every year. And then they got that pathway protected by regulations. So there's still other development in the area, but the pathway of the pronghorn has been protected. So now when we look at that landscape, it's not just about the fracking that occurs there or the recreation that occurs there in Jackson Hole. It also includes the lifeway of a species that has been there long before us and performed a historical you know, migration on this landscape that we're protecting. And I think, you know, I, I can hardly imagine anybody disagreeing that this does not increase our sense of commitment, caring, and appreciation of the landscape. So it's that kind of thing. It's easy to look, you know, it's, it's relatively easy with the path of the pronghorn because you can draw that line on a map, harder with a lot of other species to figure out exactly where they're going and when, but we can do that with big data because we observe where they are when. You can go online to on um, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, look at eBird, just type in your browser, in your Google browser, um, bird, bird visualizations. They have like eight beautiful visualizations of single species of birds migrating across the United States. So what this looks like is this curtain of light going up over the United States and then coming back down. And that is over the course of a year this, the migration pathway of single species, like one of them is of this tiny little warbler, and all those points of light that create that map are citizen science observations that are aggregated together and then visualized. So with that map of the birds, we suddenly see a different reality, right? There's a different story being told than Unipro Sarah saying, I'm, oh, God bless these heathen Indians, I can't wait to baptize them, or God bless these heathen Indians. We're going to protect them from the grizzly bears. We're going to kill the grizzly bears. You suddenly start to put layers together of how the ecosystem is actually working with the burning, with the bears, uh, with whatever else you're doing on the landscape. And then if all of those observations are really vetted through basically big databases, like iNaturalist and eBird are very good places to give your data to, then we create an alternative reality of what, you know, it's a map, I think, of the world that can help us reconcile the miscomprehensions that we have from, you know, just having different narratives about who, what, when, where, and why, and really grappling with what is actually really happening so that we can put those two together, revise our opinions about what's going on, and, and revise, of course, our actions on the landscape so that we can help support those species again. 
That's a good place to uh, end the conversation. We're out of time. Uh, there's uh, much else in the book. Uh, uh, very good read. Uh, Citizen Scientist is the book. The author is Mary Ellen Hannibal, uh, including uh, uh, some elements of memoir, uh, the uh, loss of her father. She writes very movingly about, about her father. Um, and uh, that book is out now, Citizen Scientist. Mary Ellen Hannibal will uh, be appearing at an event this evening in Salt Lake City as a part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival. That's at the Marmalade branch of the Salt Lake City Public Library, 7 o'clock tonight. Mary Ellen Hannibal, uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It's really fun to talk with you. Thanks. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Companies here compete in a global economy, sometimes at a disadvantage. We are all about hiring the best um, you know, engineers, the best uh, product managers, the best folks out there. And I think that um, there's a shortage of talent like that in the United States. I'm Kai Rizdal, Immigration Part 2 on our series How the Deck is Stacked next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. sadistic, poisonous, anti-human, and sneaky. Like a fly on the wall. You wouldn't hear us or you wouldn't see us. How can we mix it up? How can we stir it up? I bugged my car. On the next Radiolab. A grotesque invasion of privacy. Smile, Smile. you're You're on on handed camera. Join us Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.